Welcome to Power Problems, a podcast from the Cato Institute, where we offer a skeptical take on U.S. foreign policy and discuss some of today's big questions in international security with guests from across the political spectrum. I'm Trevor Thrall, a senior fellow here at Cato. And I'm Emma Ashford, a research fellow in foreign policy at Cato with a really bad cold. Today, we're talking about one of the hardest to pin down concepts in international security, norms. Specifically, we'll be talking about the norms surrounding chemical weapons, with a focus, of course, on the ongoing situation in Syria. And to do that, we're happy to have with us Greg Koblenz, Associate Professor at the Shar School of Policy and Government at George Mason University, where he is also the Director of the Biodefense Graduate Program. Greg, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. All right, let's start uh, right in with the news. Um, first tidbit, uh, North Korea, after a couple-month uh, layoff, maybe they were having a late vacation or something, uh, launched another missile, their furthest, farthest, highest, bestest one ever. Um, what does it all mean? Wasn't just the uh, the farthest, but it's also apparently the largest missile that they've uh, they've launched. Um, some people are calling it a, a monster of a missile, so it does represent a new leap in their capabilities. Yeah, I think the the sort of arms control geeks are basically debating right now what it looks like in terms of the payload that was actually on it. But if the, I think, I, as I understand it, if it had a fairly heavy payload, then it implies that they could really hit anywhere inside the U.S. or indeed anywhere on Earth with, a, with an ICBM now. And they are claiming that they had a super large heavy warhead on board. So um, clearly they're um, trying to demonstrate that they have that ability now to deliver a thermonuclear warhead to the United States. Yeah. And you know, to me, the strategic you know, risks are no different than they were a couple of days ago. But uh, every time there's another sort of ratchet up in their capabilities, it sends the United States into yet more of a tizzy. And um, for me, the, the big issue every time one of these missile launches happens is what's Trump and the Trump team going to do? That, that to me is more worrisome than what, what North Korea's missile is or isn't specifically. Yeah, you know, for me, the the thing that worries me is the Trump administration's almost sort of blindness to the fact that the strategic situation has has changed in the last six to nine months. They they persist in saying after every launch, oh, North Korea will not be allowed to have these nuclear weapons or will not be allowed to have the capacity to hit the U.S. They already have it. And so it seems like we're almost daring Kim Jong-un to, you know, do it again, do it bigger. Every time they do it bigger, we say the same thing. It's, I mean, what's next? Yeah, this is... Um... Uh, who knows? I mean, I, I, there makes no. There should be no next. It should be all right. Good job, guys. Um, the next question, like, what is there to say? But um, I'm still worried. There's another step on this whole thing. Yeah, so far it doesn't seem to be a lot of evidence that the U.S. is willing to adjust to the reality that North Korea has this capability. And if we keep talking about preemptive strikes or military options, um, which is increasingly unrealistic, that's just going to cause us more problems down the line. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, that's one disaster. Uh, another sort of slow rolling disaster, a little closer to home, um, looks like Michael Flynn, the um, uh, short serving national security advisor to Mr. Trump, um, is making a deal uh, with the Mueller investigation. Uh, obviously, a lot of repercussions for him personally, his family probably, and so on. Um, but thinking a little bigger, what are the national security and foreign policy repercussions of the Flynn affair? The thing that, that I think is most interesting is everyone was talking about this as, you know, oh, it's the Russia investigation and that's what's going to bring Flynn down. And they pointed at his attendance at like that Russia Today dinner in Moscow some years back. But it actually looks like it's Turkey and Flynn's Middle Eastern connections that are going to bring him down. The fact that he was apparently lobbying for the government of Turkey, um, that he was lobbying perhaps for other governments in the Middle East on nuclear issues while he was working as national security advisor without declaring that income. I mean, that's all extremely serious. 
Never mind the fact that apparently he was conspiring to kidnap and render Fethullah Gulen back to Turkey. So this all gets just more ridiculous the more we hear about it. Yeah, I was... Um you know, not so much surprised to hear about his dealings before getting an administration, but the fact that you now have new revelations about he was continuing that work while he was national security advisor. I mean, that crosses a line that goes beyond just him, um, you know, not declaring his foreign agent activities, you know, during the campaign. But this is a whole new level of having an active, highest level national security official um, trying to implement policies that benefit his benefactors from from previously and that, that that's just shocking yeah and and you know from watching enough legal thriller movies my 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 spidey sense here is that it's it, it if there was some russia stuff collusion going on then it's the best possible thing in the world that flynn was so dirty uh, if he happens to know of anything that can help make that case because he, he was so dirty that they have so much leverage on him now that, you know, the chance that he rolls over and says something useful is seems like it's pretty high. Um, if, if, if not, then it's, you know, if he doesn't know anything, then it's just, you know, too bad for Flynn and just a sad, you know, maybe suggestion that, that the establishment in D.C. is even dirtier and nastier than you might have thought it was. Well, but Flynn was in the establishment, right? He was fired from the Obama administration and he was brought back and rehabilitated by, by uh, the Trump team. So... I think this also says more about the uh, willingness of the Trump administration, the, the the White House, to bring in people who are um, outside of the bounds and are, you know, um, and I think that's indicative of other people we've seen who come into office and in, in the administration who abuse their positions um, for their own their own profit. Um, and really, the the biggest implication of this, of course, is as you pointed out, you know, what does he know about uh, collusion with the Russians, and who else can he implicate? And does this stop with Flynn or does this spread to other members of the, the Trump team? I think that's the $64,000 question that everyone's waiting to hear what, what Mueller has to say. You know, even though, even if it doesn't end up connecting to the, the Russia investigation more broadly, there might actually be a, a silver lining to this. Um, and not just to the Flynn part of it, but to also to the arrest um, of Paul Manafort on similar issues related to being a foreign agent, failing to register properly under FARA. And this is something that I think is fairly widely known in D.C. that there are so many loopholes and you can retroactively register and people don't always admit to what they're doing, lobbying for foreign governments. And if we actually get to a place um, where this helps to shine a spotlight on that and make it a little less problematic, a little less corrupt, that would probably be good for everyone. That would be good indeed. I mean, I have trouble. I, I see your point, Greg, about Flynn being sort of the outsider, but, you know, generals aren't my definition of not the establishment on the other hand. So, yeah, I, if, if this leads to to a general house cleaning, boy, that would be, that'd be lovely. Okay. Um, let's end with a two-parter on Britain. Um, you, you can choose A or B or, or both. I'm, I'm not going to restrict you here. So part one is is the news Prince Harry is engaged to an American actress. Um, it, best thing for transatlantic relations in a long time or possibly the beginning of the end for, for Britain as their standards obviously are now so low. Um, so that's part, part A. Part B, um, Trump uh, woke up the other morning and retweeted three um, sort of anti-Muslim videos from a, a British, you know, designated hate group, a Britain first, uh, and at least one of these videos was utterly, was utterly fake news. Um, Trump, Trump gets busy on Twitter, man. Crazy. I have to say, I'm not, I'm not one for royal weddings um, and that sort of thing, but um, this is going to be kind of the single bright spot in um, transatlantic relations, I think, during the next couple of years. So um, I might tune in just to uh, be able to enjoy the one 
slight uh, element of uh, Anglo-American um, cooperation and uh, and um, the relations that we have going on. Yeah, no, this is this is a fair point. I mean, the, the the royal wedding it's it's lovely, even if all my dreams of being a princess have died at this point. Um, but the the fact is that this is all playing out in the scope of a broader sort of Trump versus the UK. Um, argument. Not just this stuff on Twitter the last couple of days, but there's been much longer running political fight in the UK, in Parliament, in the press, over Trump coming on a state visit, what honours would be extended to him. The British public is, for the most part, disgusted by Trump and particularly by his attitude towards minorities. There's obviously a much larger Muslim population in the UK than there is here in the US. And so all of this is sort of problematic for whether Trump can kind of get past the chip on his shoulder about this stuff and actually work with the UK on foreign policy issues. Yeah, I mean, it, this sort of falls into the larger bucket of the death of American diplomacy. Um, you know, Trump seems utterly disinterested in the traditional sort of, you know, politeness or decorum that typically surrounds interstate communications, especially from heads of state about other countries or about other peoples, about other religions than his or her own. Um, and man, I mean, he just, every time you think he said something really egregious, he then goes and says something even even more egregious. And, uh, you know, Lord, oh me. Well, but um, you have to give him some credit. I mean, he is very complimentary for um, Vladimir Putin. He has lots of comments for Xi Jinping. Uh, it's just the democratic uh, elected leaders that he doesn't get along with, like uh, Angela Merkel and, um, and Theresa May. Or, or most of the Democrats or a bunch of the Republicans or, you know, most NFL athletes or, you know, <laughs> the list is long. <laughs> he has a few people he hasn't fought with, Nazis, Putin, Xi Jinping, yeah. <laughs> and autocratic monarchs, but not the British royal family because that's a constitutional monarchy. So um, I guess the big question for the royal family is, you know, they're willing to accept a, you know, American divorcee, uh, potentially, I don't believe she was ever baptized Catholic, but she was raised Catholic. And that's a big problem for the royal family. Legislation was only passed making that legal a few years back. So the royal family is willing to accept all of that. But I bet they still have to extend an invitation to Trump to attend the wedding. That's going to be difficult. Ooh, that's a that's a tough one. Now, I have to, my, my small story here is that um, my grandparents were in Britain when um, Princess Di got married to Prince Charles. And... Um, or when Di got married to Prince Charles, became Princess Diana. And uh, I still have a commemorative uh, twin uh, deck of cards, one with Lady Di backs and one with Prince Charles. They're my treasured possession. I love a royal wedding. It's the spectacle. You can't. I also love the British Bake Off show, whatever that horrible show is, but I can't stop watching that either. All right, anyway, next, uh, let's move to the surprise question of the day before this really goes into an uh, anti-professional direction. All right, Greg, uh, surprise question of the day for you. Um, what do you think the most overhyped threat uh, that people are talking about facing America is today? And then on the flip side, what threat isn't getting that much discussion but do you think is actually, you know, really a, a critical threat or, or something that's just tragically underdiscussed? So starting with the overrated threat actually ties back to the first news story we talked about in terms of North Korea. Um, the, the the fear that there is a, a looming nuclear war with North Korea, I think, is is grossly exaggerated. North Korea is developing these weapons because they are intensely insecure, vulnerable, uh, paranoid, isolated country, and they will only use these weapons in extremists to defend their existence. Um, 
And the only thing that would trigger a North Korean use of nuclear weapons would be a U.S. invasion of North Korea um, when we know that. And we are not, therefore, going to undertake that uh, effort. And so the idea that North Korea, that Kim Jong-un is irrational or he's crazy or that he's going to use nuclear weapons as a way of trying to reunify the peninsula, I think is just um, misplaced. And the deterrence will work with Kim Jong-un the same way it worked with Stalin and Mao. And um, uh, it's not a comfortable position to be in, but I think that's the reality and we need to look at it that way. So for uh, underrated threats, I have two, uh, one of which I know something about, the other I, I know nothing, but I will offer it anyways. Uh, I think the, the, the situation, the crisis in Venezuela is intensely disturbing. I, again, I know nothing about Latin America or Venezuela, but um, what I've seen in terms of the media coverage, in terms of the, the conditions there and the lack of medicine and the starvation, I'm just frankly surprised every day that there has not been some um, just popular uprising or military coup or civil war starting in that country. And when it, if and when that ever happens, it's going to have humongous implications for Latin America and therefore for U.S. foreign policy in that region. So I'm, um, you know, thankful that it hasn't come to that yet, but I just keep waiting for that shoe to drop and, and I don't think we're prepared to, to handle the repercussions. Um, the other underrated threat, uh, which is more in line with my um, background in, in biodefense, is uh, antimicrobial resistance. Um, there is a huge health crisis, in, not just in the US, but around the world in terms of um, uh, bugs that are now resistant to all the drugs that we have um, on the market for them. And our pipeline of new antibiotics is woefully thin. Uh, and so this problem is going to get worse. And what is kind of particularly um, concerning is that unlike Ebola, which is a naturally occurring infectious disease, uh, antimicrobial resistance or AMR, right? That's entirely a man-made phenomenon, right? We over-prescribe drugs to um, to patients. We give drugs to um, animals to promote um, health and growth, um, and um, we don't have very good um, health practices in hospitals to prevent the transmission of of um, drug-resistant um, bacteria. Right now, the estimates are that only seven hundred thousand people in the world uh, are dying um, a year from from this. But there was actually a study that came out of the UK um, last year by economist uh, Sir John O'Neill that estimated by 2050, if trends don't change, we're going to see 10 million people a year dying from uh, antibiotic-resistant uh, drugs. And so this is putting us back in the pre-penicillin era where getting you know, a minor infection could be life-threatening. And uh, I think that is a highly underrated threat that we're not taking seriously enough. That might be the scariest one we've that's, heard so far. Yeah, there's no question. That's terrifying. That's, that's awful because I was just... Um, yeah, I was reading some historical sort of account of something or other. It doesn't matter what. And this guy's brother cut himself on a piece of metal while doing some woodworking, and he died because there was just nothing they could do about the infection. And it's as simple as that when you don't have penicillin anymore. Yeah, next year is the 100th anniversary of the 1918 flu, right, which um, was the worst flu pandemic we've ever had. But um, the reality is that most of the people who died or a large fraction of the number of people who died didn't die from flu. They died because they had opportunistic bacterial infections that – people couldn't treat back in 1918. Flu pandemics now are less severe in part because we do have antibiotics that can handle that part of the, the infection. But as that capability goes away, um, we're, we're going to see you know, definite upticks in, in morbidity and mortality associated with things that otherwise would be you know, non-lethal or, or just you know, mild illnesses. And that's, um, that's going to have huge implications politically, economically, socially, and, and in terms of healthcare. Well, perhaps that's a good segue into the more depressing discussion that we'll be having today, which is um, about your work on um, not just biological issues, but particularly on chemical weapons um, and on the norms that surround their use. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, 
you know, let's start with one of the most recent developments there on the Syrian chemical weapon front, and that was Russia's veto, I guess the latest veto in a series of these vetoes at the UN Security Council, um, as you know, as it was attempting to investigate serious use of chemical weapons. Um, what does that mean going forward for, uh, for this whole thing? So the, the Russians actually um, issued two vetoes uh, against the renewal of what's called the Joint Investigative Mechanism or the, the GIM, which is the UN body that is authorized to investigate the use of chemical weapons in Syria and then uh, attribute blame and identify the perpetrators uh, in order to hold them accountable. And they've done so successfully several times. Um, they've um, identified uh, Syrian helicopters as being responsible for a series of chlorine attacks in 2014, 2015. And then most recently, they... Uh, identified uh, the Syrian government as being responsible for dropping um, a bomb filled with sarin on the, the town of Kanchikun back in April of this year, which triggered a U.S. missile strike on, on Syria. And in fact, because the gym has been so successful, the Russians have felt very threatened by this because it is undermining their support for the Assad regime. And so they've been defending their, um, their client state and trying to prevent sanctions from being imposed. And now the latest gambit is to uh, eliminate the gym, which, which they've succeeded in doing. The gym no longer exists and it cannot exist without um, UN Security Council uh, support. And so this just leaves a, a huge question mark in terms of what will be the future of um, attribution and, and responsibility and holding accountable the, the perpetrator of, of attacks in Syria. And right now it's an open question. There are a couple of options, but none of them are good. And, um, and especially if Russia continues its uh, intransigence on this, um, they're going to have a limited ability to, to operate in, in Syria and actually find the truth about these things. It's interesting, Greg, maybe because you've been looking at Syria pretty closely, you could say this. I, you know, it, it, I mean, I, we're going to get to this in a second. But on, on one hand, just like from a civilian level, well, it seems obvious that the international community is going to make special efforts to figure out who, who exactly is responsible for the use of the chemical weapons in Syria. But at the same time, uh, chemical weapons are responsible for a miny, m minor fraction of the deaths of civilians in Syria over the last several years. Uh, how much effort has been given to finding out who's committed other war crimes, non-chemical weapons war crimes? Is, is that sort of stuff getting the same treatment or, or not? Do you know? Um, it, it is getting a lot of treatment. There, there is um, uh, a commission under the Human Rights Commission that is documenting and um, uh, investigating some of those um, uh, types of atrocities. And the UN General Assembly just created another independent investigative mechanism that will also cover some of that same same territory. So there has been definitely still a lot of attention on, on the um, you know, use of, you know, attacking civilians, uh, siege warfare, starvation, um, use of incendiary weapons, cluster bombs, other things that are that are illegal. Um, so the chemical weapons is just one of many types of weapons the regime is using that are uh, uh, illegal, but they are also... I would argue that they have some of the highest potential for killing mass numbers of civilians. And I think it's – even though they're just one of many things causing misery in that country, they have a pretty significant um, uh, a potential uh, for causing even worse harm if it's not controlled. So let me ask you this though because some people say that um, it's, it's less that there's a norm against the use of chemical weapons and more that they're just not very effective on the battlefield or they're not very effective in general. But you say they've been an effective weapon that the Assad regime has used. What, what is the benefit to their use of chemical weapons? So the benefit of, of the weapons has not been a kind of traditional military sense of using it on, on, the, on the battlefield. Uh, they've been used primarily as weapons of terror against civilians in the rebel areas and being used as a way of, of demoralizing them, driving them out of, of territory. And I think they've also been used as a way of the Assad regime to signal their own supporters that 
Um, we are using all means at our disposal um, to defend you, the, you know, the, the primarily the Alawite minority, um, and that when certain red lines are crossed by the rebels, uh, such as you know making major incursions in Damascus, uh, you know uh, major operations into Latakia province, which is the Alawite heartland, that's when you tend to see the Assad regime use or escalate the use of chemical weapons. And so there's some domestic signaling going on where clearly they think this is a valuable tool because they keep using it again and again and again. Yeah, well, I, I'm interested and I ask about the other uh, war crimes investigations because I, I have not been aware that the Russians have made you know, extra efforts to quash those, although I'm sure they're not being cooperative. But it's uh, as a pivot to to my next question. It's it's curious to me that the Russians would make such an effort to to squash the the chemical weapons sort of investigations instead of the other ones. And my my pivot here is 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 this something to do with the fact that even the Russians understand that there is an international taboo or norm against the use of of chemical weapons? But but before we can get to that one, I think we just need to back up for a minute and and say, you know, Greg, what do you think? If you could, are there norms about the use of chemical weapons, or about having them, developing them, and and you know, where where'd they come from? Um, so so there's a long history that that predates the the events going on in, in Syria, and you have to go back to, to World War One, where chemical weapons were first used on a, on a wide scale, and um and and the revulsion that publics felt in, in Europe and, and America against these weapons led to the Geneva Protocol of 1925 that outlawed the use of chemical and biological weapons. But it didn't um, uh, outlaw the possession of these weapons. And so these were still viewed as, um, you know, military um, weapons. And so most of the great powers had come up weapons through World War II, um, through the Cold War, um, but they were rarely used. Um, um, in part, there was a normative aspect to this where these weapons were not fully accepted by the, the uniform military as, as standard uh, weapons, but there's also a deterrent aspect to it uh, as well. And... Um, um, by the time we get to the Iran-Iraq war where you have Iraq using you know, massive amounts of chemical weapons against the Iranians and then uh, particularly against the Kurds uh, within, within Iraq, you start to see a, a, a sea change where uh, there's a growing recognition that the military utility of chemical weapons have declined on the modern battlefield, but these pose increasing risks to civilians. And this led to the Chemical Weapons Convention of, of 1993 that outlawed not just the use of these weapons, but also their possession, production, development. Um, and that has kind of been, become a global regime against these weapons that all but three countries are or four countries are are part of. Um, and this really helped reinforce the norm that these weapons are outside the bounds of kind of civilized, um, acceptable behavior. And, and what's the difference between, in, in, in your mind, between a, a treaty that makes something illegal and a norm? Is there anything special about having a norm or is it really just the treaty and the, and the law? I, I think they work together. Um, the norm is obviously a little bit more kind of abstract and, and diffuse, but um, it's really, it, it's a mindset. It, it dissuades people, like not even thinking, yes, I want chemical weapons. They don't even think that way. They think this is something that's unacceptable. I'm not even interested in it. Whereas the treaty operates more, okay, well, you're interested, but it's illegal. And there's an inspection regime and there's verification and therefore maybe I want it, but I'm not going to try and get it because I might get caught or there might be other um, consequences for me doing that. So the norm, if it's successful, operates prevents people from even thinking they want these weapons. And that makes it really hard to demonstrate that, yes, this norm is real and it's succeeding because the best success is nothing's happening. And But again, this also makes the failures very glaring. And that's what we're seeing in Syria, where there is a, obviously a massive failure of the norm against these weapons. Um, but, you know, there are other signs that the, the norm 
is strong because of the, the very strong reaction you've had from other countries about this. Um, it's not just been something that's been accepted as you know typical business. It has been singled out for special condemnation and, and actions to try and um, investigate and deter and retaliate for. So I think it, there is some evidence that the norm is not you know universal, but it is it is being uh, the enforced as as well as possible. Yeah, and that's a, I guess that's a key question is, you know, enforcement on this. It seems um, that when you go and actually you look at, say, the Arms Control Association has some good resources on this or, or other organizations that, that study this and look at this, UN organizations, that there are um, a whole bunch of countries that have signed up to this. And then there are countries... Um, that are alleged to still have chemical weapons. And some of those are in the process of destroying them, like the US, like Russia. Others claim they've never had a program, but say like China, the US says that China has at least had a program, even if it doesn't have one just now. So, I mean, how does verification and enforcement of this actually work? Is it just one country's word against another? So one of the um, the real strengths of the OPCW is they have, which is the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, and they implement the Chemical Weapons Convention. Um, they have um, uh, an entire um, inspection division that goes out and um, gathers information on uh, countries' chemical industries and past programs, and they will verify declarations that different countries make, and they will oversee supervision of, for example, in the U.S., oversee destruction of our, our existing stockpiles. Um, and, um, and this is designed to provide some confidence that um, countries that say they don't have chemical weapons don't have chemical weapons. Um, ones that say that we have them or getting rid of them are, are doing so. Um, and um, and so far, it's it's worked um, it's worked pretty well. A number of countries actually signed the treaty and then said to the to the OPCW, okay, we have chemical weapons, we are getting rid of them. And so um, they could have not joined the treaty. They could have joined the treaty and tried to hide the fact they had chemical weapons program, but they didn't. And so I think that's is part of the the power of the norm is they felt compelled to. Participate in this um, this regime and uh, and and get rid of the weapons that they that they had instead of holding on to them. Um, but it obviously gets you know there are a couple of hard cases and, and Syria is clearly one of them where um, especially in light of what happened at Khan Sheikhoun, clearly the Syrians did not declare the full extent of their chemical stockpile. The PCW was not able to verify the full um, destruction of that of that stockpile, and they still have withheld a certain amount that they are intending to use. Um, you know, as they see fit. It actually seems like Syria is not alone in the Middle East in this. Um, because again, if you look at the countries that are sort of concerns on the chemical weapons front, it is Syria, it is Egypt. Israel is one of the very few countries that never actually signed the, the chemical weapons convention. Um, we've seen uh, Saddam Hussein use chemical weapons on his own people. Uh, obviously, we've seen it now in Syria. And so if there is a norm uh, against the use of chemical weapons, it seems like it's weaker in the Middle East. It's it's true that the, most of the uses of chemical weapons, especially since World War II, have been in the Middle East, right? Egypt and Yemen in the 60s, uh, Iraq uh, in, in Iran against its own people um, in the in the in the 1980s and 1990s, and and with Syria um, today. And so there is there is some special weakness of the norm in, in that in that area. One one interesting thing though is that. Um, when you look at the Arab Spring and you look at the countries that, um, you know, the leaders who resisted um, the movements against them, um, a couple of them, aside from Syria, had chemical weapons and didn't use them. So Libya, we now know, um, even though Qaddafi said he gave up all his chemical weapons in 2003 as part of the WMD disarmament deal he had with the U.S., um, when the new Libyan government took over after the fall of Qaddafi, they found a secret stash of chemical weapons that they then turned over to the OPCW. 
And so the question is, well, why didn't Qaddafi use these weapons to defend himself and his regime in, in the final hours of, of fighting the rebels? Um, and Egypt is, is widely believed to have a, a, a chemical weapons program. Um, why did not um, Hosni Mubarak use those weapons against demonstrators the way that the, the, uh, the Assad regime has used them against uh, his own people? So we don't know why, but um, it, it's not to say that there, you know, there, there probably again there's probably a mix of a normative element to it, um, and maybe some some fears of um, you know uh, sparking foreign intervention or other other consequences. But um, just because there has been a, a history of use of these weapons in the Middle East doesn't mean that you know every country there is is you know, ready, willing, and able to to use these weapons. Yeah, I, I think you know people are often, I think, confounded by this notion of a norm. Uh, you know, if someone used chemical weapons, how could you say there's a norm or that it has any effect at all? But I think context is key here. And if you look at the examples you just named, um, you know, and we had a conversation a few weeks ago with Alex Downs about uh, targeting civilians at war as a more general proposition. And, um, you know, desperate times call for desperate measures. And I think the f if you look at the pattern of Syria's use of chemical weapons, it's not willy-nilly. It wasn't the first thing they came up with. Um, it, it's, it was, as you mentioned, it was a signal at a, at a, at a desperate moment in, in various cases where they really needed to do something drastic to signal to their folks, hey, we're with you or, or whatever it might have been. Um, that, that itself may be a signal that the norm is in the Syrian regime's mind. I mean, they're, they're going to violate it because they're desperate, but, but even they are thinking about how to use them because the norm does exist. Yeah, that's true. And, um, and the fact that the regime that's using it in the Middle East has violated every other norm that we have in terms of the way you treat civilians or you, you conduct military operations is just indicative that um, it's not the chemical norm per se that is the problem. It's, it's the, the regime. The Assad regime is the problem. They're violating every norm that they can to stay in power. And it's probably worth noting as well that other norms uh, or other ways that countries act are often weaker or slower to catch on in the Middle East. Um, and the, the example I'm thinking of here is mostly missiles, uh, the use of missiles against civilian populations, which is something we basically don't see anywhere else in the world, but we have seen repeatedly in the Middle East over the last few decades. And so um, perhaps we're just a little slower to catch on in these countries that are so despotic. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right. Well, you know, chemical weapons have been dominating the news and th thus the focus today on, on Syria. Um, but Greg, given your background in, in biological weapons, we, we have to take the opportunity to ask you, um, you know, CW, BW have a lot in common. There's a lot of overlap. Um, what is the current state of the sort of chemical weapons norms debate and the Syria stuff? Tell us about the biological weapons sort of situation and vice versa. So there's a couple of interesting things going on. On the one hand, the um, the Biological Weapons Convention relies even more heavily on norms than the chemical uh, nonproliferation regime does. There is no uh, bioequivalent of the OPCW. There's no large institution to um, you know collect information and verify it that countries are complying with the BWC. So it's heavily reliant on, on the norm. So any sign that the chemical norm is weakening, despite all the international institutions designed to bolster the norm, right, is definitely worrisome on, on the bio side. Um, and the other um, connection that we're seeing now is um, a spillover between uh, from the conflict over serious chemical weapons use and especially Russia's very um, strong defense of that uh, of that activity. Um, into the, the bio realm as well. So, for example, right now there is a meeting going on in The Hague of all of the, the state parties of the Chemical Weapons Convention. And that meeting uh, is um, tippy-toeing around the issue of Syria. 
uh, in large part because of, of Russian diplomacy and activity to try and, and minimize the importance of what's going on there and to um, uh, prevent the, the, the Conference of State Parties from taking a strong, a strong stance. Next week, there is another meeting in Geneva for all the state parties of the Biological Weapons Convention, and it'll be a lot of the same people. And I would you know, strongly expect that same divisions that have emerged over Syria to spill over into the BW area, right? even though they are functionally distinct and different regimes and different, different problems. Um, because the Syria's chemical weapons issue has been so politicized, uh, I, I fear that that's going to uh, have an impact on, on the BWC as well. And so um, you know, at the political level, um, they're gonna, they're, they've been um, linked together in ways that, that right now are, are going to be very unhelpful. I hope I'm wrong, uh, and, and maybe you'll have to have me back after the Geneva uh, meeting to, to do a recap, but my, uh, I'm, I'm very pessimistic now that that's going to be a, a, a meeting that will have you know, useful, positive, substantive results. It does make you wonder if the biggest threat to chemical weapons, biological weapons conventions might not be Syria using the weapons. It might be the choice of Russia to actually sort of defend or at least ignore that and, and in doing so weaken the convention. Yeah, that 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 is a a major concern, and it's also surprising because the Russians were um, worked with the U.S. to on the original deal to get Syria to eliminate its chemical weapons in the first place. They did support the creation of the Joint Investigative Mechanism in, in 2015. Um, they are one of the original depositories of the Biological Weapons Convention, so um, they have a long history of being engaged on these issues. But um, I think also what we're seeing here is. For a long time, the Russians were um, violating the BWC. Um, for a, a long time, they were, they were trying to violate the Chemical Weapons um, Convention, and so um, I think the, the maybe the balance within Russia is tilted away from the um, you know the the more arms control oriented um, factions interested in cooperating with the West to those who are much more you know hardline nationalist opposed to any U.S. endeavor w whatsoever. Yeah, well, that that's a, a good segue to to a last sort of topic, which is, you know, what do we do about all this? I mean, Obama drew a kind of a watery red line, and then Trump actually launched missiles in retaliation for the use of chemical weapons. But you know, what what should the U.S. and the international community really be doing here? I mean, should we be trying to get the gym back in in play, or is there some other thing the U.S. or anyone else could do here? Unfortunately, um, there are not a lot of good options, and the fundamental problem is that there's an asymmetry of interests. Right, the Assad regime looks at their um, survival at being at stake. Right, they have an existential interest in preventing rebel offensive into, into Damascus or into Latakia province, which are their kind of two major strategic sanctuaries. And so, our ability to deter their use of weapons to defend the survival of the regime is limited. You know, unless we are willing ourselves to impose, you know, regime-threatening types of punishment. And under Obama, he was unwilling to do so. Uh, and, and under Trump, it looks like he's unwilling to do so as well. The, the strikes on, on the Shirat airbase um, were mostly symbolic, um, right? They put the airbase out of operation for a little while. They, you know, um, degraded Syrian combat aircraft for, for, a, for a little bit, but um, right, didn't fundamentally change the balance of power on, on the ground at all. Um, so... Um, I think there are a couple of things we can do that are not going to be, you know, solve the problem, but um, but I think can can help on on the margins. Uh, one of them is something that we've already been doing uh, pretty extensively, which is imposing sanctions on individuals uh, in Syria who've been involved with um, planning, conducting, uh, or doing the research to support chemical weapons attacks. 
And um, you know, even though these people don't do any business in the U.S., and so they're not, and they're not planning on traveling here for vacation or anything. So again, the, the impact is, is symbolic, but it is naming and shaming, right? It is trying to reinforce the norm that these are people who have uh, either misused their knowledge of chemistry to do evil, um, or they are part of a government that has been planning right the systematic use of poison against civilians. Um, and uh, we've also had some success in getting our, our European allies, uh, the Australians, the Canadians, on board this as well, and, and trying to build an international. Um, uh, uh, list of, of folks who are, if and when there is a new government in Syria, um, they could be held uh, accountable either by a new Syrian government or if there's ever um, uh, access to the International Criminal Court, we now have a list of the people who should be brought to The Hague for, for trials for war crimes. So that that's part of a longer term strategy, but I think it's, um, I think it's, it's, it's necessary. Um, if there was more unanimity within the Chemical Weapons Convention, I think there would be a chance to uh, impose some sanctions directly on, on Syria. Um, the Chemical Weapons Convention uh, regulates trade in what are called scheduled chemicals, which are chemicals that are either chemical for agents or the immediate precursors to those um, war for agents. And so um, one, um, one option would be to put an embargo on Syria to prevent them from, from buying or importing uh, these scheduled chemicals, which would contribute to their, um, to their chemical weapons uh, program. Um, and, and the final thing, which is um, uh, kind of building on the, um, uh, the strategy the Trump administration used back in April after the, the Contra Kun attack, is to make it very clear to um, the Syrian regime that if we see an attack launch from an air base or from a helicopter base, um, and we can you know, confidently attribute that this was a chemical attack launch, we will destroy that base. And you know, doing that with one base is maybe symbolic, but if we have a credible threat to do that uh, for multiple bases, um, that I think might have uh, an impact. And again, it won't change fundamentally the balance of power on the ground, but uh, it will threaten something that the, the Saudi regime values, which is their, their air power and their ability to use it with impunity against uh, both rebels and civilian areas. And this has clearly been a key part of their uh, campaign to, uh, to, to push out the opposition from East Ghouta and from other areas. So being able to credibly threaten those uh, assets that they hold dear would, um, I think, cause some level of Concern, I think, would restrain them um, in, in the event that they are um, considering use again. You know, that is that is an interesting point at the end, though, because um, one of the reasons people say the Obama administration didn't actually take action uh, after the first chemical attacks, well, other than negotiating the deal, which might have worked, perhaps took many of the chemical weapons out of the Assad regime's hands. Um, but one of the reasons that they didn't take military action was that they were actually afraid that in destroying air bases, that they would tip the balance of power on the ground and allow the rebels to overthrow the Assad regime, making the situation inside Syria even worse. So, I mean, I think it just highlights the limits of these these military options and perhaps that the, uh, the, the sort of diplomatic options that you were highlighting first might be the more viable path. Yeah, <clears throat> for me, I think you know, there's a I think a fancy word um, for enforcing norms with other norms called meta norms. The idea that naming and shaming is what you're supposed to do when someone violates a norm, and I think that's great because that is a very restrained sort of thing to do. Um, the argument, of course, is that it's toothless. Um, you draw red lines. You say you know nasty words at bad people, and they don't feel hurt because they're nasty people. Um, but the next step of actually you know uh, killing some of the you know, regimes, folks, and blowing up their bases gets you involved in a fight that's not your fight. I mean, you know, in a sense, the norm is your issue, but the fight inside Syria is not necessarily your issue. But you can create new adversaries and enemies very quickly when you start shooting people down. And I guess, you know, if if 
theoretically, if you were going to do a kind of a tit for tat thing, which I think, you know, I'm, I'm sort of seems from a modeling standpoint, very clean. Like, I like it. Are you going to do that? We're just going to blow it up. I'd want to take turns with a bunch of other countries, or maybe everyone shoots one missile at the same time so that it comes from everyone and not just one, so that the group nature of it is very clear. Because I, I don't think it's always the United States issue to solve all of those problems. Yeah, so there's actually been, uh, there's a new article that just came out by Jeffrey Lewis and um, Bruno Tertre in Survival, where they talk a lot about the um, the French component to the, the the searing chemical crisis from 2013. And, and the French actually were even more ready than the U.S. was to use force to uh, respond to the attack on Ghouta in 2013 that killed, you know, 1,400 people. So, um, and Macron has said very um, strong words about um, retaliating for any further violations of the red line by the Assad regime. So I don't I don't think we would be alone. I don't think it would just be a U.S.-only um, uh, initiative. And obviously having more countries join in that deterrent message would help. And again, the goal is deterrence. Um, the goal is not to um, uh, have to use force, but to be able to, to make the threats and, and pick the targets that actually make the most sense that would have an impact on, on the Assad regime's you know, calculations. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's a, you have to thread the needle. Um, but again, between the, the, you know, condemnation without actually doing anything, right, and the regime change, right, there are other options. And I, th I think, again, there are no good options, but that is the one that I think would help um, reduce the risk of these weapons being used further um, down the line. All right. Fantastic. That's a good, a good place to end it. Uh, thanks for joining us for this episode of Power Problems. And thanks, Greg, for joining us. Great conversation. Uh, big thanks, as always, to our producer, Jeff Geld. And if you liked the episode, uh, please share a link on Twitter or say something nice about us on iTunes or Google Play. You can always connect with us on Twitter using the hashtag FPPowerProblems.